0: Deadbeat Scroll by Mark Coggins is slick, sardonic, and suspenseful. Everything a great thriller should be, says New York Times bestselling author Lee Child. Find it in ebook or trade paperback wherever books are sold. In this podcast, it's read by author Mark Coggins. Learn more about Mark and his other novels at markcoggins.com. Chapter 29 Swedish All Along. I shot out from under the motorhome like a startled crayfish, shredding the elbows of my jacket as I went. I rolled to my side, pulling the knife off my ankle with my left hand while retaining the luger in my right, then scrambled to my feet. My plan was simple I was going to puncture the tires on my side of the vehicle, then charge around to the other blasting anything and everything in my path. I would switch to stabbing when I ran out of ammo. I brought the point of the knife to the tire closest to me, but after barely scoring the arm of the Michelin man, I drew it back. Yes, my plan was simple, but it was also dumb. Comically dumb. Even if I managed to survive and finish off Angelina, Brendan, and all his family— I would almost certainly be caught and charged for the crime. Ironically, it was Brendan and his many insults about my intelligence that made me realize it. As he had pointed out, Chris would have done better. I could do better, too. Vibrating with impatience and suppressed rage, I trod in a herky-jerky stride around the grain elevator to the gate. As I slipped through it, Ray rushed out from the shadows.
1: What happened?
0: he whispered, eyes wide in reaction to all the weaponry I still brandished.
1: Aren't they there?
0: I ignored the question. Angelina's with them. She's part of the family.
1: You can't blame her. They coerced her either physically or mentally. It's Stockholm Syndrome.
0: You're missing the point, I hissed. She's been Swedish all along. She killed Chris. Nearly three hours later, I was once again standing in front of the grimy balustrade guarding the Bush Street overlook to Stockton. Ray and I watched as Christabel and Hector locked the front door of Golden Fingers and trundled down the sidewalk, pushing the cart of supplies they had used to sanitize the place after a day's worth of hand jobs. As their white uniforms faded completely into the gloom, Ray turned to me and said,
1: Explain to me why we're doing this again. Aren't you worried that Brendan and the family will get away?
0: I elected to focus on the latter portion of his question because I hadn't actually explained the purpose of this exercise. I wasn't sure he would help me if I did. I heard them say they're not leaving until midday. I looked down at my watch. It was closing on 2 in the morning. That's more than 10 hours from now. And even if they do take off early, your GPS tracker is still on their SUV. We'll know where they go.
1: I'll stipulate that your answer is factually correct. Why doesn't it make me feel any better?
0: That's a personal problem, Ray. Let's get the show on the road. Time for you to head to the payphone.
1: You don't want me to wait until after you do your bit?
0: No. Make the call as soon as you get there. We don't need to do any real damage. We just need to make a point.
1: If you say so,
0: he said, and shuffled down the concrete staircase leading from the overlook to Stockton Street. He was heading through the Stockton Tunnel to a Chinatown vegetable market with another of the few remaining payphones in San Francisco in front of it. Given the rate at which he walked, he probably wouldn't arrive until after I'd done my bit. I picked up the baseball bat and wine bottle I had left on the sidewalk by the balustrade and followed Ray down the staircase to Stockton and the entrance of Golden Fingers. The frosted glass door took several whacks with the baseball bat before I had smashed an opening in the upper quadrant big enough for what I intended. I dropped the bat and retrieved the wine bottle. I had dumped the wine in the parking lot of the convenience store where I purchased the bottle, and substituted gasoline mixed with motor oil. The cork I'd replaced with a wick made of a ripped-up dish towel I got from the same store. I used a disposable lighter to set the wick on fire. It burned with a fat, lazy flame that gave off heavy smoke, visible even in the dim light. Careful not to cut or burn my arm, I threaded the bottle into the hole in the door and gave it the old alley-oop. It shattered on the lobby's concrete floor and flame engulfed the room with a satisfying whomp. I tossed the bat in after it and ran. I scrambled up the stairs to Bush Street, then hurried west on Bush until I came to a short alley where I'd left Ray's Dodge Aries facing outward. I jumped in the driver's seat and peeled off the gloves I'd been wearing, fumbled out my cell phone, and dialed the number Mr. Wong had given me. The line picked up, and I heard a grunt. This is August Reardon. I need to talk to Wong. Another grunt. It's urgent. I need him to call me back as soon as possible. I recited my number. There was a long pause and the sound of someone hacking. When the hacking stopped, a heavily accented voice said, Okay, Irish, I tell him. Click. I tossed the phone onto the seat and cranked the starter to resuscitate the Aries. It caught on the third try, and I edged out onto Bush. Although there were almost no cars on the road, it still took time to execute the torturous series of turns on one-way streets required to reach where Ray was making his 911 call. When I pulled up, he was pacing nervously in front of the payphone.
1: What took ya?
0: Arson can't be rushed. Did you make the call?
1: Yeah. Yeah. The woman I spoke with seemed particularly disappointed I wouldn't identify myself.
0: Go figure. Just then, two discordant noises reached our ears. One came from inside the car, my phone ringing, and the other came from outside, the plaintive wail of a siren. I hoped the latter was the fire truck Ray had summoned, because I really didn't want to completely torch Wong's business, or damage the adjacent buildings for that matter. I hurried the Aries over to a space in front of a fireplug, but the car stalled before I could even get the shifter into park. Reardon, I said breathlessly after I snatched up the phone. This had better be good. Wong sounded like he wasn't used to being woken up in the middle of the night. Part of it's good. I found the people who killed Mrs. Kongsheng Chai and my friend. I'm struggling to see what part of that wouldn't be good and why you needed to call at two in the morning to tell me. I tailed them to golden fingers. And? They tossed a Molotov cocktail through the front door and set the place on fire. What? You didn't stop them? They were too fast, and I was outgunned. There were at least four of them. I did call the fire department. I felt Ray stirring beside me. He had to see where this was going. That's it? You called the fire department? And I tailed them back to where they are staying. The line was silent for a long moment. Why? Why what? Why are they doing this to me? Who are they? What is their motive? This was the bit I was worried about. There was no way I could tell Wong the real story. It would be completely incomprehensible to him. I've no fucking clue. They are from out of town, and they are into kinky sex. That's all I know. Wong made a skeptical noise in his throat. Hmm. How did you get on to them? And how did you even know to follow them? I didn't. My friend did. The one who was killed. I found a if-something-happens-to-me letter that he left for me. That part was true, at least. He laid out his suspicions about them and told me where he thought they were staying. I managed to find and question one of them without revealing my connection to you or my friend. That's how I discovered the little I know about them. This is all too vague, Reardon. You could be making this up entirely, I didn't make up the fact that Golden Fingers is burning, and I didn't make up that they are armed with twenty-two caliber target pistols, target pistols that, if the police recovered them, would produce rifling marks that exactly match the slugs that killed my friend and your Mrs. Kongsheng Chai, not to mention your other employee and two more people besides. Wong drew in a heavy breath. And how might the police recover... These pistols. Suppose, for instance, they were investigating multiple shootings involving out of town victims at an abandoned industrial facility in the Hunters Point neighborhood. They might come upon the pistols at the crime scene and bag them as evidence. Wong's voice turned several degrees colder. What is the address? I told him about the grain elevator on Amador. And are you there now? I'm close, I lied. Is there a place where you can keep them under surveillance without being seen? Yes. They've boxed themselves in. I described the general area to the east of the gate. If others approached from the west on cargo, these kinky out-of-towners would be blocked in. Yes. Then go to the location and wait for my men. They will come from the other end of Amador. Okay. And Reardon? Yeah. The police have gunfire locators in the area. There won't be multiple shots unless we can't avoid it. There will be multiple throat cuttings. Ray reluctantly agreed to come with me, but now he was curled up in the back seat of the Aries. He made it clear that he wanted no part of what happened next. I had risked bringing the Aries well past the point where we parked last time, so I could see the gate of the grain elevator's yard from behind the wheel. Waiting in the car with the chilly vinyl of the seat against the skid of my neck, I had too much time to think. I also began to doubt the wisdom— and the morality of what I'd set in motion. If revenge was a dish best served cold, then at least the preparation of it was better done at a fast boil. If I could have taken everything back from the time I crawled out from under the motorhome, I might well have done it. At 3.37 a.m., a white panel van swept up to the gate, its driver unconcerned with stealth. Six men in dark clothing tumbled out and rushed the gate, guns and large bladed knives glittering in their hands. They flooded into the yard, went around the back of the motorhome, and disappeared from view. I rolled out of the dodge and stood by the front bumper, not even bothering to draw my gun. There seemed little likelihood that the men with the knives would need my help. I strained my ears for any sound coming from the yard. I might have heard a door yanked open or a soft thud of bodies, but there were no shots or cries. If people were dying, they were dying swiftly and silently. Then a live figure shot through the gate like a fish darting through narrows. She had dark hair with sweeping bangs and wore nothing more than a t-shirt that came to mid-thigh. Her feet were bare, and she made little gasping noises as she sped across the roadway. Angelina. As she moved toward me, I saw she was carrying the toolbox with a fake scroll. I moved away from the Aries and stepped forward to grab her in a hug that lifted her clean off the ground. She tensed and squealed at first, then went soft in my arms when she recognized me. Oh, August, she said in my ear.
1: Thank God.
0: I set her down hard, giving her a little shove to push her away from me. I yanked the toolbox from her hands. Hello, Bridget. She sucked in a sharp breath, and the whites of her eyes flashed beneath her bangs. No, I'm Angelina. I'm your Angelina. I know you killed Chris. No, why would I? He was on to you, or you thought Brendan would be arrested for the killing, or both. What are you talking about? I'm talking about sneaking up on him while Jeff kept him occupied and firing a twenty-two caliber slug into his skull and doing the same to your sister, if Corinne White was even your sister. She reached for me. How can you say these horrid things? I thought you cared for me. And I thought you cared for me. I do, August, I do. Let's get out of here and I can explain everything. There's nothing we can do for Corinne and Chris, but we can still be together. The man with the filed incisors Wong had called Uncle Yuen appeared on the road behind her, silent on slippers with cotton soles. Can we still be together when you learn the scroll in the toolbox is another fake and that you'll never get your hands on the real one? What do you mean? She swallowed with difficulty, and she made her voice softer, more entreating. I only took the box because Brendan attached so much importance to it. Please, we need to go. She eyed the strip of the road between the car and the fence, calculating her chances. You're not going anywhere. She was tensing for a sprint past me when Uncle Ewan snatched her from behind. No, August, she screeched. Don't let them do this. Let them. I arranged it, and I no longer had any doubts about it. She flailed in his arms, flinging obscenities at me as he carried her backwards. You stupid, stupid man! You don't know how sick to my stomach it made me to sleep with you, staring at your graying hair, the wrinkled skin on your chest, the crooks of your arms. I don't know if Uncle Ewan knew enough English to understand what she was saying but mercifully he clamped a hand over her mouth and manhandled her under his arms as if she were a roll of carpet. He turned to give me a quick nod before slipping through the gate. The last thing I saw were her bare white legs windmilling through the night. You have been listening to the Deadbeat Scroll, a book the New York Journal of Books described as a glorious potpourri of violence, black humor, sex, and a hunt for a lost manuscript. Find it in ebook or trade paperback wherever books are sold. In this podcast is read by author Mark Coggins. Learn more about Mark and his other novels at markcoggins.com.